Well, good morning. I like, I like the way when we were listening to that uh, video, the biggest, ooh, was when there was a Nerf arena announced. Oh, yeah, and it was you as well, wasn't it? Yeah, fantastic. No, that sounds really, really good. Okay, you ready to dive back into Luke? Okay, so uh, just if, if you're <laughs> unaware of what, what's been going on uh, over the last few uh, weeks, we've been studying our way through the gospel of Luke. And um, we're just about now to enter chapter 3. Oh, the mighty chapter 3. So uh, there are no slides today. And, no, I know. That's very sad, isn't it? Um, I, um, I'm going to read the old-fashioned way from the Bible. Do you remember that? I can remember years ago going to a meeting that was run by a guy called Ben Davis. He's a fiery Welshman. And he said uh, to everyone, right, you know, get your Bibles out. And, uh, and he observed, and he observed there were quite a lot of people that didn't have their Bibles. Oh, no. And he was not impressed with that. And so he said, he said, um, never, ever, ever come to a Christian meeting without your Bible. And you know what? And I never have since. <laughs> okay, so this morning's talk, I've got two titles for you. You can take your choice. It's either The Wild Man's Wilderness Revival or Preparing for the Big One. So you can, you can, you can take your pick. You can take your pick. <laughs> You can take your pick. Okay, let's read. Uh, We're going to read the first 20 verses together out of Luke 3. Okay? So if you've got your Bibles, do get them out. (laughs) Okay. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. This is very Luke, isn't it, to give us real detail of everything. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, that, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, 
And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Topical. His, uh, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, uh, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodotus, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Wow, there we go. Okay, let's just clear up a couple of things about John, shall we, uh, to begin with. Because I think probably if you know a little bit about John the Baptist, you probably have got quite an eccentric view of John. Um, uh, The the Gospel of Matthew actually is very helpful because it describes what he wears and what he eats. And John goes around in a long camel's coat with a leather belt, which is kind of not normal for the day. And uh, he would eat uh, uh, locust and wild honey. And he would exist often, live often in, w- in the wilderness. So I don't know what that says to you, but that says to me, oh, oh that's a bit strange. Uh, we've got someone who's a bit eccentric here, sort of a wild man of the woods is about to leap out at you. Um, well, look, I think we just need to very quickly uh, nail this one because... When you begin to study this man, it becomes very clear that most people, many of the scholars, agree that he was actually a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite is someone who has made a commitment to God. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 6. And it means, it's like saying, God, I'm all in for you. I'm all in, and I'm prepared to forego certain things, eating certain things, and, and you'll see what it is. So he can't, for example, he can't drink wine. It's not a vow I'm going to take, I tell you. Um, He couldn't drink wine. He couldn't even eat grapes. You're not allowed to eat grapes. You're not allowed to eat raisins. Um, uh, It meant that you could never cut your hair on your head. Um, No, I could do that. Do that. Um, That's really put me off, Edge. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Um. Yeah, so, and he would have been also very particular, therefore, about what he ate. And he would have been very careful to only eat clean foods. So under the law at the time, there were certain foods that were clean and other foods that were not clean, ritually clean, this means. Well, it turns out that both, if you're living in the wild, two relatively plentiful supplies of food that are clean are locust and wild honey. So what it tells you is that this man is actually trying to live for God and he's keeping himself clean before God. Now, as to what he's wearing, so he's got this long hairy coat on with the leather belt. That's exactly what Elijah wore. So by wearing these things, what he is saying is, I am linked to Elijah. 
And of course, the prophetic word over him is, you will walk in the power and the anointing of Elijah. So actually, what he's wearing is a visual demonstration of what God has said over him. Okay, so that's why he's wearing this weird stuff. So suddenly, I hope your, your view of John, rather than this mad, wild man of the woods, what we see is a very dedicated man to God. He is hugely committed to God. I'm, he's an all-in kind of guy. Okay, and that's, I think, what it should explain. Okay, uh, now what else do we know about John? Well, in chapter 1, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel has announced this guy's birth. Bit unusual, that. I think maybe it happened for you. I don't know. Certainly didn't for me. Um, but here is Gabriel, and he's announced, and he said some things about John. And we know that there is a very, very special call over the life of John. And uh, Gabriel points out some of the things that uh, John is going to do. And we've already touched on, he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, if you're first, uh, uh, first century Jewish person, somebody says Elijah to you, what goes on in your mind is signs, wonders, awesome power of God. Under Elijah, dead people rose, axe heads floated, he was lifted up into the air, uh, seas parted. So that's immediately what comes into your mind. Okay, so power, power of God will be poured out through this guy. So we, we immediately find out God is going to pour his power out through this man, John. It's a remarkable word to be spoken over him. The angel in chapter 1 also says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Right, that tells us something. What that tells us is many of the children of Israel are not currently walking with the Lord tells us something about the state of the nation at this time, is that they are backslidden. Many are not walking with the Lord. We've got a backslidden, ungodly nation on our hands at this time. And John is going to come, and he's going to lead something of a revival. And we can see the impact that he has. Now, what's the giggling going on down here? I'd just like you to know it's very off-putting when you do that. Honestly, you always find someone, don't you? If it's... <laughs> We're in the middle of revival here as well. So, he's going to turn many of the children of Israel... That's enough now, stop it. <laughs> he will turn many of the hearts of uh, the children of Israel to the Lord. It also says he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So many disobedient, people who are currently walking in disobedience will start to love justice and think, yeah, there's wisdom in justice. I'm going to walk in a just way. So you could see this guy's going to have an incredible impact on the nation of Israel. That's what it says. Now, look, there's one other just thing here I want to flag up to you. He's going to do this. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of parent-child conflict, but maybe this is just me. What comes into my mind, sorry, is stroppy kids. It's, you know, Kevin, you know, the... Oh, oh do I have to do that? I hate you. I don't want to do what you say. I hate it. 
Sorry, but that's what comes into my mind. But look what this is saying. It's not saying that at all. It's saying he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So what he's saying is there is an issue with the fathers. Men and, and I think women as well, who should be fathers, in the biblical sense of the word fathers, are not doing their job into the nation at this time. There should be a whole group of people loving the children. Uh, Jesus so helpfully shows us, doesn't he, what a good father is like in the parable of the prodigal son. What is a good father like? A good father yearns for his children, for the well-being of their children, to see them return, to know him, to be in intimate relationship. That's what the heart of a father should be doing, but these fathers are not doing that. They are looking after themselves. They're disinterested in the kids. So who are the fathers that should be standing up? Well, I'd suggest to you, the Pharisees and the Sadducees should be the fathers of the nation. They're the ones that should be saying, look at the state of our nation. It's backslidden. We should be having a heart for them. They're not doing the job. So God is calling John to say, I want you to have a ministry to these guys. And actually, we see, don't we, that many Pharisees and, and uh, Sadducees come out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. He has an effect. It's an incredible thing to affect uh, the fathers of the nation. I remember a, a story told by um, Nicky Gumbel. Uh, who is the vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton, which is where Alpha comes from, if you don't know. They are a church now of multiple thousands. And he tells this story about Sandy Miller, the previous vicar. And he says, uh, uh, when Sandy first arrived, it was not a big church at all. In fact, it was a small and dwindling congregation of very elderly people. And uh, one day, these elderly folk got together and they had a chat and they came to see uh, Sandy afterwards, and they said this. They said, Sandy, within 10 years or so, most of us will be dead. And so will this church be. If you don't do something to make it more appealing to younger people. So we'd like to say this to you. We give you permission to do anything, anything that you want to make it better for young people, to open the door for young people, and we won't complain. It's quite a thing, isn't it? And uh, that was the time when things began to change. Remember, that I, think we're, I think we're in the 1970s, so this is a radical move. It doesn't sound radical now. They ripped out the pews, and they put chairs in. They started to introduce guitars and a different style of worship. The volume went up. And sure enough, those elderly people hated it. <laughs> but, but, they, but they said, we see it's necessary. So Sandy honoured them by having a traditional service, 9 o'clock, until, until they all died off. And then all the other services were full-on charismatic. I want to say to you, that's the heart of a father. Those men and women were fathers to that church. Because they loved the children and put their needs before their own. Are you a father or are you a child? Is the church for you or is it for the 
the broken people to come in and find home. See, it tells you where you are. A child will want everything for themselves. Well, I like the volume this level, and I want the preaching to be like this, and I, I don't like this, and we can't have that, those chairs there, and I don't, because I like it like this. A father will say, is it good for the kids? Does it bring them in? Are they being met with? Then let it happen. It doesn't matter what I feel. Look, you are important, don't get me wrong. You, your view is important, but you see, it's the heart. John's call is to bring people that do not care back to being the fathers they should be. And I want to say fathers can be men and women. Men and women. People that care for the kids. Right, there's one other thing that John is called to do, which I'd really like to focus on. And it's this. John's purpose is to prepare the way for Jesus. Prepare the way for Jesus, a job that he's very happy to do. He doesn't have to be number one. Please observe that with John. He's happy to bow the knee to the king. And uh, uh, we can now leap from chapter one into chapter three because it's this purpose of preparing the way of the Lord. He's then expanded in chapter three. And uh, uh, we see the quote from Isaiah to explain what that's all about. And it says this, it's, your job is to make his paths, that's Jesus' paths, straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's what it tells us. It's an extraordinary image. It's basically saying you've got to create a level road, a clear level road. And if there's a mountain in the way, John, knock it down. And if people are walking along and they come across this valley, an obstacle, fill up the valley so that there is a nice, straight road so that people can find this great salvation. Also says, all flesh. In other words, the world. John, you're involved in something that will affect the entire world because Jesus will affect the entire world. And you, your job is to be a forerunner to him, to make his way easy. Wow, that's quite a calling. So I guess when I read that, I was saying, whoa, that's really impressive. How on earth do you do that? You know, I mean, if you're called, oh, make, you know, make a way for the Lord, my reaction would be, what, how? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, we need to see he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Really topical for us right now. People are being filled with the Holy Spirit. God's power is going to work through this man. God's anointing, Elijah anointing, was on this guy. That's what we're told. And uh, therefore, it's the power of God. Second, let's have a little look at the message that John is, John is bringing. Because that tells us how he is preparing the way. And I think when we look at the message that John brings, he is the closest you will find to an old-fashioned hellfire and damnation preacher that exists in the Bible. And it's just extraordinary. John is a, not a guy who will compromise. And he doesn't compromise on this message of sin, of hell, of judgment, and unrepentance. He's really full on. I mean, just look, look at verse 7, if you've got your Bible. Uh, <laughs> Look at verse 7. And uh, so remember, so he's in the wilderness, and suddenly crowds start to come out to him. 
And uh, do you think, you know, how are you going to deal with this? And John doesn't think, wow, crowds are coming out. I better warm them up with a little joke. So have you heard the one about uh, the, the Roman, the Judean, and the Galilean? And they all go into a bar together. And one said, no, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't tell them a joke. Look what he says to them. <laughs> you brood of vipers. Oh, welcome. Welcome, everyone. That's our new strap line for Hope Churches. You are all vipers. <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I serious stuff, but I have giggled a bit as I've been reading this. You brood of vipers, welcome. Uh, who warned you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, <laughs> in no way does he win the crowd and warm them up. He's basically saying, you are a bunch of appalling sinners. Did you know how sinful you are? Remember, he's speaking to a backslidden nation. He is deeply uncompromising in his message. He explains very clearly that they are sinners. Now, remember, he's in the power of the Spirit here. It's not just some wild, angry guy having a rant, okay? Which is in the power of the Spirit. So John is preparing the way for the Lord by helping people see their true state. That's what he's doing. People are sinful. We are all born, sorry if this is news to you, but we were all born sinful as sinners. When we become Christians, we become saints who occasionally sin. But, but when we were first born, we are sinners. We are born with an instinct to sin, and then we choose to indulge our sin. We all did it. We're all in the same boat, okay? <clears throat> People need to know the bad news before they can know the good news. The gospel is at its most effective when people know the problem. It's like a star at night. You see it clearly when it's against the blackness of the background. You see the star shine at that point. So uh, John, this deeply uncompromising man, is absolutely preparing the way for Jesus by helping people see their need of him and his forgiveness. He's saying, you need to repent. You need to repent. Funny, isn't it, that we have to point out to people that there's sin in their life. You would think it would be the most obvious thing in the world. But uh, it isn't. Actually, we read from uh, the, the beginning of the Bible, from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid. Sin led them to hide. Now, that's absolutely true for non-Christians. They will want to hide, generally, their sin. Also true, I would suggest, even for Christians at times. There is a desire to hide our sin. All in the same boat. Some will go to extraordinary lengths to try and deny it. But if we say we are without sin, what does the Bible say? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I want to urge you, even, even us, don't Hide your sin. What does the Bible tell us to do with our sin instead of hiding it? 
confess our sin. So it's the very opposite of the instinct that we have. We want to hide it. The Bible says, confess your sin. So, question, next question for you, obviously. What are you going to do when you sin? And you will, unfortunately, even as Christians, although you are not sinners anymore, are you going to hide your sin or will you confess your sin? Are you going to bring it into the light? What else does Scripture say? It says the truth will do what? Set you free. Denying it will not. So the point of confession is to set you free, to bring you into the life that God has for you. You know, John was so committed to this message of helping people understand their true state that he had his head chopped off for it. He pointed out, even to the king, so he, just, he didn't just do it to the crowds, he said to the king, king, you're in a sinful state right now because you are in an immoral relationship with the woman that you are calling your wife. And she hated that statement so much, she found a way to have his head chopped off. It cost him his life. It's not a popular thing to say, is it? Ha ha, hello, you're all sinners, you brood of vipers. No, people will hate that. It is why I think the gospel is called an offense. The offense of the gospel. How dare you say to me that I am sinful? The gospel is offensive. But John is brave uh, in speaking out. Okay, how else then does John help prepare the way for Jesus? Well, one of the things I think he does here is he strips them of their religious excuses and justifications. He says to them, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So it seems what was happening at this time is some of the Jewish uh, folk at that time, particularly I think the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were saying, look, we can live any way we like. We can live as sinful as we like, and we've got this amazing get-out-of-jail-free card that we are children of Abraham, ha-ha, which means in their mind meant we could do anything we like. And because we're related to Abraham, we're on God's side, and he's going to say, oh, that's fine. See what I mean? And we can think a bit like that, sometimes like that. I remember, I remember years ago, I can remember uh, hearing about this guy who got confirmed and christened, even though he wasn't really sure there was a God. But he thought, I'm going to do that as an insurance policy. So that if there is a God, I can say, but I was, in, I was baptized and christened and confirmed. So that gives me my ha-ha card. Yeah, John absolutely strips that away from them. And says, no, it's about you and how you personally stand before God. What is your individual standing before him? Do you have religious excuses? Covers? Well, yes, I know. I mean, I perpetually do that sinful thing. I know. But I, I do go to church. And I am very good and I help people. And I give to charity. And I tithe, actually. So does one sort of balance out the other in your mind? It's a religious excuse. The Bible says confess your sin. Get yourself before God. Say, Father, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry. 
So John, again, bravely, just absolutely, wow, he just doesn't hold back on anything, this guy. What else does he do? How else is he preparing the way for Jesus? Well, he doesn't shy away from the reality of hell. <laughs> it's cheerful this morning, isn't it? <laughs> he doesn't shy away from the reality of hell. In the passage I've read, there are two references to fire. And the second one I'm going to read to you, it's this, he says this, his winnowing fork... Uh, a winnowing fork is like a cross between a fork and a spade. And uh, when there was a pile of wheat, you'd put your winnowing fork into the wheat, you'd throw the wheat in the air, the, w the wind would come along, it would blow all the chaff out, and then all the wheat would fall down. And you'd do that on a number of occasions to get the wheat nice and clean, okay, to get all the chaff out. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's pretty uncompromising, isn't it? Uh, John makes it very clear that there basically in life are two options. You can either be in the wheat or in the chaff. And actually, if you look biblically, you'll see that repeated. At the, at the end of Revelation, there is a two-option deal going on there. It says that people will, will be separated into two, two groups, the sheep, the believers, and the goats, the non-believers. The Bible also talks about you are either in Adam... Or you are in Christ. If you are in Adam, it means you are still in your sin. You have not repented. But if you are in Christ, you have been forgiven. We don't like a two-option deal. We like a multi-option deal. Well, I'll have a bit of that and a bit of this and a bit of that. The Bible doesn't give us the luxury of that. It basically says you're either wheat or chaff. You're sheep or goat. You're either in Adam or in Christ. And it forces you to ask this question. So which one are you? Which one are you? Have you made the choice yet? <clears throat> very, very uh, uncompromising language that's being used here. And he, you know, he explains. This, this is what he touches on. This is the beauty of having to read through a whole gospel. You have to go places that possibly other times you wouldn't. He explains that the fire of hell is unquenchable. We've got to look at this. Hell is not a popular subject to talk about in our current culture, is it? Is it? It really isn't. I mean, even now, many of you are thinking, I wish you wouldn't do this. I'm partly thinking that myself as well. <laughs> but it says, look what he says. There is a, an eternal sense to hell. It is unquenchable, and i.e. it will never go out. Hell is a real place where real people can really go. And church, it's our job to do everything we can to shout and say, don't go there. You don't have to go there. There is a rescue plan in place. Just reach out to Jesus and he will forgive you for your sin. Hell was never designed for people. It was designed for the devil and his angels. But when people say, no, God, I'm not going to go your way, it means they put themselves there. Because they're saying, I don't want to be with you, God. Well, there's only one other place then. Yeah. Don't go there. Don't go there. I trust Christians, this will sober us again. It's meant to sober us and sharpen us. You know what we're about? This is about life and death. 
the, the consequences of what we are about are eternal for people. There is no more important thing than what we do. There really isn't. There really isn't. God's, the gospel message is urgent. And boy, does it come through, John's preaching. The way he presents it. This uncompromising man. Wow. Okay. Last thing. How, does, uh, how else does John prepare the way for Jesus? Well, he does this. He shows people how to repent. Boy, I'm so glad he did that. <laughs> and he says this. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance has got to be real. And if you truly repent, there will be a fruit from it. It will mean something will change about you that will then be reflected later on. What repentance isn't is saying, yeah, yeah, sorry, okay, there we are. Let's move on. We have a tendency, I think, just to say, oh, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, sorry, all right. Or even feeling a bit bad. Now, John makes it very clear, no, repentance will result in a genuine, real change in your lifestyle. So he says to the tax collectors, stop stealing. Stop taking more than you're authorized to do. To the soldiers, he says, stop extracting money out of people by threats. Live differently. He's really practically showing them, hey, this is what repentance looks like. It means a changed lifestyle. Because people are coming in, they're totally backslidden. No idea of God. Now they're encountering God. Now they're changing. Oh, I've got to live differently now. It's what it means to be a Christian. I'm just going to finish on this. Um, I became a Christian when I was uh, 16 years old, around about 16. Can't remember exactly. And. Um, the reason I became a Christian was because a friend of mine stopped me one morning and said, oh, hi, Adam. He said, uh, I've just become a Christian. And I looked at him very quizzically and confused, and I said, oh, that's good, Chris. Uh, we're all Christians, aren't we? Because we live in a Christian country. Well, he had me for breakfast, as you can imagine, with an answer like that. <clears throat> he said, no, no, that's not the case. You need to become a Christian. Then he looked at me and he said this. He said, and you need to become a Christian. And I can remember when he said such a simple word, it was like somebody had reached inside my being and shaken me at the deepest level. I felt so shaken. And I couldn't work out why, because everything was good. I lived in a prosperous little town, little village. My parents were stable. They loved me. They were for me. I had friends. Life was good. What's the, there isn't a problem. So why do I feel there's a problem? And then two weeks later, he came around again. We were just chatting. And he said pretty much the same thing. Yeah, and, and I really think you need to become a Christian. Same feeling. Whoa, something's wrong here. What the Holy Spirit does is see, he comes and he convicts of sin. And I look back now and I realize the Holy Spirit in his grace was working on my heart. Saying, Adam, you've got to change. There's, a, there's an undealt with issue here. Even though you think you've been a very good kid. I mean, I, I was a good kid, generally. But God was saying, generally. Apart from smashing the headlights with the hand. Apart, apart from that. Yeah, all right, one or two other things. But anyway, look, you know, 
The point is, something needs to change. No matter how good you think you are without Christ, you need to come before him. You need to ask him to forgive you for your sin. And you need to get to know him. And that's what I did, really, at that time. I began just to say, God, I believe in you. That just happened instinctively. And I started to kneel down by the edge of my bed. Nobody taught me how to pray at that time. So I just thought, well, this is what you do. And I just started to talk to God. God, how do we do this together? And then it got to the point where I... I said, yeah, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And I'm going to follow you now for the rest of my life. You are the boss. Actually, he's kinder than that. He's a good father. But ultimately, he is the one we bow the knee to. And it means for the rest of your life, you then follow him and he comes first. It's what it means to have a Lord in your life. When we refer to the Lord Jesus, it means we've bowed the knee. But he will forgive you for your sin. And I just want to give you the opportunity this morning to do that. You know, John's way was to prepare the way for the Lord. I want to do that for you this morning. If you don't know him, I trust I've prepared the way for you to receive Jesus this morning. Why don't we just close our eyes? I'm just going to pray a prayer. And you have the opportunity now, if you haven't already done this, I know many of you have, which is wonderful. But if you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, the one who will forgive you, uh, this is for you. You don't have to say this out loud, but I'd encourage you to say it very genuinely in your heart to God. I'm just going to pray a prayer. Why don't you repeat the lines inwardly? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me. I ask you to forgive me for my sin. Everything I've done wrong, please forgive me. Everything I have done, am doing, and will do, please will you cover it. Jesus, right now, I realize I believe in you. And I come to bow the knee before you. Please will you take my life. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life here on earth and into eternity. Thank you that you love me. In your mighty name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to chat to you afterwards, and I know Ian would too. Um, but I just want to say, if, if you would like prayer as well, I know uh, Kim's already flagged up. There were some things we wanted to pray for. Uh, please do come forward. There'll be people with the uh, green lanyards on. They're the prayer team. Uh, so and they'll be just at the front here. God bless you. If you'd like to have a chat with me, I'll be around. Uh, God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.